Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 16th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show, committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. And good evening, I'm William Hosea. Karen Freeman Wilson was born and raised in Gary. She earned a Bachelor of Arts degree from Harvard University and Juris Doctor from Harvard Law School. In 2000, she was appointed Indiana Attorney General by Governor Frank O'Bannon to serve the remaining 11 months of the term of Jeff Modisette, who resigned to become Deputy CEO and General Counsel to the Democratic National Convention. After leaving office, Freeman Wilson went on to become CEO of the nonprofit National Association of Drug Court Professionals. While there, she helped get a trial of Promita, a treatment for methamphetamine addiction, launched in the Gary Court, uh, the Gary Drug Court. In July 2007, Ithium incorporated the company licensing the Promita protocol, named Freeman Wilson to its board of directors. Other executive posts held by Freeman Wilson include executive director of the National Drug Court Institute and director of the Indiana Civil Rights Commission. In May 2011, Freeman Wilson won the Democratic mayoral primary for the city of Gary. She won the election with a landslide 87% of the vote, becoming the city's first female mayor. Freeman Wilson and her New Day transition team developed a blueprint for Gary promising to improve public safety, economic development, and the city's appearance and image. In 2018, former Mayor Karen Freeman Wilson of Gary was elected president of the National League of Cities. She served a one-year term as president of the nation's largest and most representative membership and advocacy organization for cities and their leaders. She focused on her presidential plan, she focused rather her presidential platform on creating communities for all generations, responding to the unique needs of legacy cities, uplifting and supporting civic engagement, and addressing our nation's varied housing crisis. In a touching statement, she shared that her time as mayor and as a member of NLC has placed me in the company of fellow elected officials who not only understand the uphill climb that many urban cities face, but extend their wisdom, advice, and best practices to help remedy the circumstances we encounter. I look forward to leading this organization and telling the story of Gary on the national stage. In 2019, the board of directors of the Chicago Urban League named Karen Freeman Wilson as the organization's president and CEO. She assumed the role after completion of her term in office, and she joins us now to discuss a variety of issues related to her work with the Chicago Urban League and observations on the current political climate in our nation. With that, as always, welcome Ms. Karen Freeman Wilson to bring it on. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you all. We are delighted to have you this morning and, uh, well, for a pre-record for this evening's broadcast, but we're so glad that you could carve out some time 
join us uh, for what is remarkably uh, just a stellar career in public service. And we've always enjoyed our conversations because you have such an insight um, and you have such a passion for service. And that always comes through in our conversations. And thank you. Well, I've been incredibly blessed and um, who would not carve out times for uh, two of Gary's finest. Uh, we still claim you. You may live in other places, but uh, you are still ours. Well, well I thank you, and uh, I'm humbled by that. Um, we're ready to move back now. We're ready, ready to move back. <laughs> let, me, let me start. Um, you have this new fascinating role in Chicago. Now, you've been a blessing to Gary. Now you're a blessing to Chicago. Uh, Chicago Urban League President, please explain your role, uh, some of the functions, and your vision for this position here. I have um, been honored and humbled with the opportunities I've given. And so the uh, opportunity to serve as president and CEO of the Chicago Urban League has just been tremendous. I started in January, actually January 1st. And um, during that time, of course, we have been faced with the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as um, a reckoning both in the city of Chicago and across the nation with the vestiges of racism that we have seen in our country. And so to be able to lead a 104 year uh, institution in the city of Chicago during a time where our work in terms of the programming that we do for Black businesses and Black families and the work that we do as a convener and then the research and policy that we set, uh, not just for Chicago, but for the state of Illinois has been an incredible blessing. And in April, we set up uh, the COVID-19 Help Center in the city. And since that time, we have been going nonstop. Uh, we've granted over $5 million to local businesses that have been impacted by COVID-19 and the pandemic. And that's of course been done in partnership with the city and the state and the county but we've also provided training and technical assistance uh, advice to those business through our Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. In addition to that, we were a part of the Chicago Connected program and uh, did our part to connect over 50,000 CPS students to the internet either through issuing devices or through ensuring that they had access to internet through our youth services division. And then we have been working to keep people from being evicted along with the city through our housing and financial empowerment department. And then um, we have one of the premier leadership programs for black professionals in the city of Chicago. And we started our second, or actually our eighth impact cohort. Uh, and of course we're doing all of this virtually because we've been out of our physical office space since March. But I um, 
am pleased to say that our team has worked even harder than ever because we know that the need for our work doesn't stop in a pandemic. Of that $5 million in assistance that the Urban League has uh, granted to local businesses, um, I, I keep reading and hearing these news accounts of businesses that are either on the on the verge or have already shut their doors, many of them permanently. So do you know how, how much that $5 million has, has helped those businesses and uh, especially to keep them from going under? Uh, are you able to track that? You know, it's interesting that you should ask, ask that, William, because that is what we are looking to do right now. We will have a report in February of next year. And um, our research and policy center is one of the premier uh, centers that focuses solely on the black community. And so um, we were instrumental in looking at the cost of segregation in the city of Chicago. We looked at the disparity between opioid treatment and then most recently talked about, uh, issued a report talking about COVID-19 and institutional racism. And so in February, we are going to publish the state of black businesses. So that research is going on right now. And so uh, in February, I should be able to tell you that uh, these many businesses failed. And I think when we were last looking at it, it was uh, a third of businesses in the city of Chicago. So we're not sure how many of those were black businesses. And that's something that we are going to look at. But we know that one of the businesses that is extremely well known and um, highly patronized, Lowry's Prime Rib, you know, which has uh, an international reputation, is going to close in December because of the impact of the pandemic. So if you think about an institution like Lowry's and think about the smaller businesses that have one or two people operating in the Black community, we are um, afraid that we will find that the pandemic and the civil unrest and so many other challenges that we've seen during the course of 2020 will adversely impact Black businesses. But we're also hopeful in that we believe that the help that has been given through a variety of programs, the big program at the state level, the Together Now program at the city level, and, and some early support that Mayor Lightfoot gave to um, small businesses through a micro uh, business program, we think that while there will be a number that have failed, there are also a number of businesses who are able to use those dollars to just hang on. I wanted to uh, sort of follow up on that. The economic relief package and stimulus package that has gone nowhere and that is just talked about now, um, which could benefit so many millions of Americans, is I know having a, a, a dire impact on large metropolitan cities, cities like Chicago. What is your thought on just the stalemate or the lack of uh, initiative on the, on the part of Speaker uh, Mitch McConnell to, to bring this to the floor for a vote. 
You know, I think it's so irresponsible. And, um, you know, while I would say that the majority of the uh, responsibility or blame goes to um, Mitch McConnell, I'm not going to take uh, or let uh, Nancy Pelosi off the hook either. And here's the thing, uh, when you are a millionaire, it is hard for you to understand the plight of people who are literally standing in line for food. It's just difficult. And I think that sometimes members of Congress, particularly the leadership, because we know that they have meetings, they are very busy, they don't often get back to their districts, right? And so they don't really see how much people suffer. And if they just took a day in any district, whether it's urban or rural, they would, I think, have a better understanding of how their uh, political posturing is really impacting everyday people. I do think, unfortunately, though, that um, there is a narrative being uh, conveyed out there that is really giving Leader McConnell uh, some comfort in thinking that he's doing the right thing from a political standpoint and from a fiscal standpoint. And the narrative is this, the economy is improving. And so it's really not needed and the other, I think, much more scurrilous narrative is that, um, well, folks were getting rich off of the stimulus checks, and it was a disincentive for them to go back to work. And that is just irresponsible to even talk about that because, you know, people who are getting, who got this one time $1,200 and who are even getting the unemployment checks to a person, if you ask them, would you rather just receive this check or would you rather have your job back? I mean, they were working before this happened, you know? And so if you're going to indicate that folks are lazy or people are unmotivated, then they wouldn't even be eligible for the check. They were working. So that just flies in the face of logic. You know, that, uh, that veil language uh, about welfare and yep. then even more direct language I heard uh, this fall about uh, providing welfare or bailout to states. And then even further into uh, this narrative that the president tried to advance about just bailing out blue states. Um, so this whole thing has been politicized. The, the sufferings of people in America, the health uh, the health dangers to people of America have all been politicized. And as a result, here we are with, I guess, less than, what, 35 days, well, 36 days before he's supposed to exit. We're still just trying to get help to people who are in dire straits. And the Senate is doing nothing. 126, was it, William? 126 senators signed off. 136. Uh, 136 senators signed off to derail uh, the will of the people. I'm sorry, House of Representatives, not not the senators. Yes, yeah. Thank you. Um, House and, members. And and now we have today, fortunately, a distribution of the COVID vaccine. 
to cities. And, and I hope, and this we all want to get into a little bit later in our conversation, the equitable distribution of this vaccine to communities in, in, in greatest need, and especially those that are black and brown. So, yeah, to your point, I think it's, uh, I, th I think part of it is as a millionaire that many of these people are millionaires, they're not touched as we are. And I think that, um, you, you know, as they say, they're, they're true colors from the standpoint of just how the Republican Party has always seemed to rail against assistance of any kind. Uh, if we don't have an equal playing field. So I thank you for that, for that observation. Uh, William? Um, in October of this year, there was this, there was just a, an excellent article that came out in Crane's Chicago Business, which I'm sure you're thoroughly familiar with because you wrote it. But um, the article was titled, In Planning a Better Chicago, We Need All Sectors on Deck. And you referred to the faith-based community, community-based organizations, and academia and philanthropy and and you describe them all as super sectors how do you see them coming together in their respective roles and planning for the future so i think that um what's really important in getting everybody on deck is when you have a an issue that is so intractable or when you have issues because we have a lot of them uh when you look at poverty in chicago um when you have so many challenges in terms of unemployment in terms of educational uh the lack of educational attainment when you have uh housing challenges then you can't just depend on government to solve those issues. And that's the point I was making. You know, um, certainly Mayor Lightfoot is the leader of the city, but from experience, I know that certain people unfairly look to government to solve a lot of problems that have historically and that are better solved by the support of the community. Uh, whether you're talking about um, really clothing drives as an example. Uh, there were times in the city of Gary where if someone didn't have any clothes, they could go to a clothes closet at any local church or at any other community-based institution, the Campbell Friendship House, the Gary Neighborhood House. There were a number of places like that. And as those places um, become less available, and you know, we have to ask ourselves why the why philanthropy has gone down to the extent that you don't have those places available. You know, corporations are still making money. Uh, U.S. Steel is still thriving. The flagship is still in Gary, and so finally, we got them to. Uh, come to the table in, in a number of ways, but it's not just co the corporate community. It really is volunteers, um, the divine nine, right? I think that we really have to task ourselves to say, what are we doing? And uh, other civic organizations over the weekend that talked about the gap 
that people were seeing and learning. And I said to um, the a few of the uh, members of the links, I said, hey, you know, we need to do something about this because there are people sitting at home every day, retired, who could be of tremendous help to students just in motivating them to get on because their parents are working or something like that. So I think that there are roles that we can all play and we have to think about it from a personal and then from a corporate perspective. What is my role in eradicating poverty and institutional racism? And that that's an excellent point that you make about volunteers. Um, because there, the need for volunteerism is so great that there's literally something for everybody. And if you have any amount of time, it, it's not difficult to find out what your niche is in volunteering for the community, especially people like myself who are retired. You know, the, the, the key to uh, staying healthy, one thing is to just keep it moving. And that's one reason why I volunteer. Clarence? Absolutely. I uh, want to go back to the summer, uh, you know, 2020 was an unusual year for a lot of reasons. And fortunately, at the end of the year, there is this ray of hope that hopefully will take place uh, on January 20 of 2021. Uh, but this whole year has just been one for the record books. There were there were a series of unrest all through the nation this past summer, and it was uh, leading into the fall where protests and disruptions to life in the cities coupled with the pandemic and coupled with just racial tensions. But then we had a president and I, and I go back to the tension that he had with uh, Mayor Lightfoot, uh, basically proclaiming that he will send federal troops or whatever into the city of Chicago to quote unquote restore order. And it was this sort of high level chess, chess game uh, where basically he was just saber rattling and we saw through it. We, we saw exactly what was going on and then he targeted uh, democratic cities as he just wanted to really further split the nation and you know between blue and red. As you saw this playing out in front of you, what was your thought? What went through your mind? And then as a former mayor, what, what went through your mind if you were to get these type of calls or this public uh, you know, they're getting blasted out there publicly. What, what went through your mind? It, it was really disappointing. Um, you know, one of the things that we enjoyed uh, during a, a significant term of time while I was mayor was the support and partnership with the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. And admittedly, um, we were spoiled, but never in a million years would you think that uh, you would go from this supportive and collegial environment to solve problems to this almost um, daily conflict about immigration and about police community relations and about you name it. Um, there was always some type of fight. And I think that it um, really showed uh, how little the president understood about cities. 
because at the end of the day, we have a um, need to really address what's going on in urban arenas in a very different way. And, and you know, the other thought I had was if I were him, I would leave Chicago out of this conversation because, uh, you know, I've seen Mayor Lightfoot work up close and that would not have been a pretty picture. And, and now we have another opportunity or challenge, and that is the equitable distribution of the vaccine. Now, will the Urban League work hand in hand with the city to make sure that, that uh, key areas receive this vaccine? I, I know it's coming out in limited numbers now, but, but we do anticipate that uh, more of the vaccine will flow into the cities and communities all around America. What's your thought on, on going forward as far as who should receive this vaccine and and what's the fairest, most equitable way to do this? I think that there is so much scrutiny about the vaccine and the safety of it and the distribution that we will see a, a tremendous deference to physicians and to um, those in the uh, epidemiological community who are best situated to make that determination. And so mm -hmm. I, I'm very comfortable in uh, the fact that they will go with uh, healthcare workers and um, frontline workers, and then they'll move to our seniors who are in nursing facilities. Um, you know, I've been really listening and this Friday uh, or this Thursday, we have our board meeting and I'm excited because we will hear from Dr. Ngozi Ezeke, who has uh, been a leading voice nationally, but who is the director of the Illinois Department of Health. And she's going to talk about that because the Urban League, uh, and not just the Chicago Urban League, but the National Urban League and its affiliates all over are offering ourselves um, from a standpoint of health equity to help people become educated about the vaccine and you know the importance of it in our community, but also to serve as distribution sites uh, in the community because of our locations across the country. And so this is something that we will be heavily involved in and that we will watch closely. Um, and you know, certainly the urban leagues in Indiana, the Northwest, uh, Fort Wayne and uh, Indianapolis Urban Leagues. Uh, one more, just a follow-up question, if you will. In this conversation, the one segment that I've not heard addressed uh, are those individuals who are incarcerated. How will they well, receive this vaccine? And I think, you know, aside from their situation, that's a concentrated group of people and that thing can spread quickly from those walls uh, outside to the public. And your thought on well, that? The, the reality is that it has spread very quickly in many of the jails and prisons across this country. And I think that you have to use the same reasoning that we have seen used with the um, nursing homes, that they are uh, certainly 
they're older, but the concentration of inmates, I think, supports that they have to be prioritized. Now, you know, there is always a debate about the treatment of inmates, but I think from a constitutional standpoint and from a legal standpoint, um, cruel and unusual punishment to deny them the vaccine, given the fact that they don't have a choice of being in or out, uh, will really support them being higher on the list for being vaccinated, particularly those places that have seen outbreaks already. And I know that Cook County has. Since uh, communities of color were disproportionately impacted by the COVID virus, are you satisfied with the the, the way that they prioritize who's going to re, uh, be receiving the vaccine? Uh, do you think that those communities and people should be higher in the pecking order? You know, that's a, a difficult question because uh, certainly we have seen the disproportionate impact uh, in the incidents and death from the disease. I would like to think that there is a way that um, having had almost a year of research and, and of data, they could go to those communities, uh, those one cities and those communities that have been disproportionately impacted. Because as I've heard the data, I believe that a lot of it uh, indicates that in even in cities like Chicago and New York, where we have seen high incidences in uh, Latinx and black among Latinx and black citizens, it's happened in certain neighborhoods. It's happened in certain areas. And so I would hope that we would use that information to really um, target the availability of the vaccine. I think they've done that with testing. So I'd certainly like to see them do that with um, the distribution of the vaccine. So once the vaccine makes its way to the cities, does a mayor have any um, discretion and and how it's distributed at, at the local level? I don't believe mayors do. I know that governors do. And I guess that to the extent that governors will do this through their departments of health, uh, and there, is, there are health departments in cities, there may be, you know, as I think about it, um, there may be some discretion or at least uh, the ability of the mayor to really push and make it widely available to citizens. But for instance, if you look at Lake County, Indiana, um, they, uh, not all cities, not all communities have health departments. In fact, Hammond doesn't, but Gary does. And so that's why I think you'll find that even those decisions will be made more at a county level to ensure a level of equitable treatment. Um, you recently gave testimony on behalf of the Chicago Urban League in support of the Obama Presidential Center which is planned for Jackson Park, where you said, and, and I want to quote this, 
When solving hard problems, every sector must be involved every step of the way. Consistent, consistent civic engagement must be a part of daily business, not just a demonstration of our own self-interest or reaction to the most blatant injustices. And when I read that, my first thought was guilty. Um, so when you really think about it, that that's exactly what we do as a community. But even though uh, we do operate like that, some of us, that's not necessarily a bad thing because it's still some involvement. But it's really obvious how important it is for consistent involvement. So my question is, do, do you have any tips on how to get there? How do we make that happen? I think first it, it starts with a mindset, William. I think that people really do have to understand how interconnected we are. And, um, you know, time is up for us to be able to see a problem, think that it's unfortunate and just going about your business as usual. We just can't afford that as um, members of community, wherever your community is, whether it's Chicago, whether it's Gary, whether it's Bloomington. And, um, you know, you and Clarence and I have gotten, have, have the luxury, I think, and the good fortune of being raised in a true community. And there are still those who understand that, right? And so we just have to figure out how do we, how, how do those of us who understand what community is all about and what it means and how it lifts people, um, that we have to really do our part in adding to that community, whether it's faith community, whether we do it at church, whether we do it in our civic organizations, whether we do it uh, by promoting volunteerism on our job. You know, we have been extremely fortunate at the league this year to have companies as large as Illinois Tool Works, which is a multinational company uh, to Amazon, to Facebook, to really not only, you know, provide monetary support for the league, but to say that our community of employees want to be volunteers. We want to provide homework help. We want to um, talk about what it's like to do what we do so that we can begin early to groom the next generation of, of um, individuals. So I think that one of the silver linings um, or one of the positive things, I won't even call it a silver lining because there is not a silver lining, but one of the positive things that came out of the civil unrest and just the institutional racism bubbling up at a level that people who were oblivious to it for the last 400 years uh, started to say, well, why is this happening? And why do people feel this way? And what's really going on? And more importantly, how can I help? So we're seeing that we're seeing a renewed desire for volunteerism at the corporate level, but we also have to ensure 
that it happens consistently with community. And one of the things that just really um, struck me about the whole Obama presidential center debate was that they were talking about, um, you know, people who didn't even live in Jackson Park, who lived nowhere near Jackson Park, decided that it was time to preserve the environment in Jackson Park. And I'm like, oh, so now you want to talk about environmental stewardship when you have the ability of, you know, billions of dollars over the course of time of investment in a community that has seen very little investment. Well, you know what, we'll work with the environment and we certainly understand environment stewardship, but you know what, this is a hard choice. Well, really it's not so hard. We're gonna go with the billion dollars for $500, Alex. Yeah, totally disingenuous. If you've just tuned in to bring it on, we're having a wonderful, delightful, and informational conversation with Karen Freeman Wilson, former mayor of the city of Gary, and currently the president and CEO of the Chicago Urban League. Uh, Karen, I, I wanted to sort of shift gears and, and go back to something that was mentioned in the introduction for you. At one point in your stellar career, you were CEO of the nonprofit National Association of Drug Corps Professionals. And while in that role, in that capacity, you helped get a trial for Promita, which was a treatment for methamphetamine addiction, and you launched it in the Gary Drug Court. Um, looking back on the drug court origins and the success of Promita, uh, what would you advise other municipalities to do in tackling such things as this opioid epidemic, which is going on amidst the pandemic of, of COVID-19 and high unemployment and on and on. How valuable are the drug court concepts and how would you advise communities to, to take a look at establishing those? Well, you know, um, I had a tremendous uh, honor in working with the National Association of Drug Court Professionals. And this was really um, during the early part of the drug court movement, it was actually from 2001. And we started our drug court in Gary in 1994. We were one of the first 50 to start nationally and the first continuous drug court in Indiana. Actually, it was us, it was the Lake County Drug Court and the uh, Vigo County Drug Court in Terre Haute. And what we have come to understand from the drug court field and what we've seen through data is that treatment works. And sometimes that treatment should be medication assisted. And, um, and what we ultimately found about uh, Prometa was that it was not as, infected, as effective as early trials showed, but um, one of the things that we understand is that there are long time tested treatments for opioid addiction like methadone, like um, Suboxone, like uh, Vivitrol for alcohol. There are some treatments that do work. And a lot of times when you start talking about medication with um, opioids, 
people get, um, they have interesting reactions and they say, well, that's just substituting one drug for another. No, that's just using medication like you do with any relapsing, debilitating disease. Uh, it's like using insulin for the diabetic. It's like using um, lisinopril for those with high blood pressure. Uh, addiction is a disease. And there are times when you have certain aspects of the disease where it requires treatment with medication. And so we were open to that in Gary because we understood that we um, encourage courts to look at the evidence of the effectiveness because after all, that's what courts do, right? And if you look at the evidence, then you will in fact consider methadone and other treatments, but it's not a standalone um, remedy. You have to use it with um, the other aspects of treatment, such as the group setting, the individual counseling, the drug testing, all of those things work together to ensure uh, and to support a person in recovery. And, and just as a follow-up, what is your thought on the way America looks at its sentencing guidelines and the disparities amongst those guidelines? And then the president's been touting that he did this reformational thing with our justice department where what's with, with, with sentencing and release of uh, individual criminals from jail. What's your thought on that whole on that whole area? Well, you know, I am the first to give the president um, credit for his role in criminal justice reform. And you know, I'm not going to even ask or think about how did you know who motivated him to do that, why it um, happened the way that it happened, or any of that. Really, what I am. Um, thinking about is that it provided relief for a number of sentences, uh, citizens. We continue to need um, a tremendous overhaul of the criminal justice system because it's not just a, a handful of drug offenses. It's not just one aspect. It's looking at how prosecutors make decisions to prosecute people. It's looking at, you know, who's incarcerated and how long they are incarcerated. It's also looking at what type of community-based solutions exist for the mental health needs that we see in our community and how they are addressed. And, you know, what I believe is that we are going to see even more of a, a comprehensive approach to criminal justice reform under President Biden because he understands the damage, quite frankly, that his work did in the early 90s. And, you know, I'm not going to even say it was just solely bad because you got the Violence Against Women's Act out of his administration. Drug courts came out of that Senate 
reform bill under Janet Reno at the time, who was the um, the attorney general, the U.S. attorney general. And so now there's an opportunity to keep those things um, that are working, but to also expand those things that are are working and then to look at what are some new things that we can add to provide support. You know, it's only a handful of folks that belong in jail forever. I mean, and you know, you hear who they are all over the country because, you know, they're are the son of Sam, you know, Manson, people like that. Uh, the average person, uh, Darren Van, who came to Gary, and kill folks and hit them in uh, vacant and abandoned houses. And so those folks, you know, they ne should never see the light of day. But the majority of people um, have a time when they should be back in society. And when they come back, you don't want to guarantee their return. You want to really give them a pathway to remaining productive citizens. I want to touch on a uh, political discussion that that's kind of been flying under the radar a little bit. But when, when you think about the Laquan McDonald incident, I would imagine Chicago is still healing at, uh, in some measure to, to that experience. The officer that was convicted eventually was convicted to less than seven years in prison. And uh, now Joe Biden is considering putting uh, including Rahm Emanuel in his administration what what are your thoughts on on that and uh, do, do you think that would be a mistake is that is that a slap in the face to Chicago you know um, certainly Mayor Emanuel uh, made a tremendous error in the Laquan McDonald case. Um, but I won't, won't say that that lies solely at his feet. Uh, he was a leader and he bore the brunt of the responsibility. And quite frankly, I think that's ultimately why he did not seek reelection. But um, if any of us was um, held hostage by the worst decision we ever made, then few of us would have opportunities for redemption. And I think that if President Biden determines that uh, because of his relationships in Washington, because of his commitment to um, certain, because they may have a shared commitment to certain goals that uh, Mayor Emanuel would be of service, could be of service, then, you know, he should consider it. I, I don't, I wouldn't say that uh, the Laquan McDonald decision should just be a flat disqualifier. Um, and, you know, I know that there are folks who would, would disagree with that, but I just, you have to look at Mayor Emanuel and other mayors who have been in similar positions. I look at Mayor Fisher down at in uh, Louisville. 
and understand that um, so often there are uh, a number of factors that you are only as good as the information you receive. We saw that with Mayor Warren in Rochester uh, in, in the incident up there earlier this year. And so um, the short answer to that question is, I, I think he should be considered, obviously Laquan McDonald and his involvement and his leadership during that time has to weigh heavily in the balance. Uh, you know, as an example, and I can't remember I don't think it's an issue anyway, because I don't think that Rahm is a, an attorney, but like I wouldn't make him attorney general. You said you would not? I would not. Okay. I would not. Yeah. On that, on that, uh, on that statement, who do you think would be an excellent attorney general for it? Um, oh gosh. What about, I an have individual, to tell you. what about an individual named Karen Freeman Wilson? Oh gosh. No, 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 no. <laughs> Uh, uh, is uh, that your phone? Is that your phone ringing now? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't ever want to work that hard again. I don't ever want to work that hard again. I, I certainly would uh, welcome the opportunity and, and the um, drug free commission is something that I'm very interested in, but that's a volunteer service. That is not a job in the administration. Um, you know, I have to first admit that I am biased. Uh, Loretta Lynch and I uh, pledged together. So I've been, we've been friends uh, since we were teenagers. And um, and then er, um, Eric Holdridge, Holdridge's wife was one of our line sisters as well. So um, I think that they were both uh, tremendous AGs for different reasons. And um, I think that Janet Reno does not get the credit that she deserves for really uh, being uh, a, a really, really uh, forward thinking AG. And so what I would say is you want an attorney general in those traditions and one who is solely, uh, wholly independent from the White House, uh, because we have seen increasingly and AGs look like the president's attorney. And I'm like, that's not what the Justice Department is supposed to do. But it was so blatant. It, it was so, it, and it still is so blatant. Shamefully so. Shamefully so. And so I, anybody who serves in that role is going to have a high bar. Right. Yep. Correct or a low bar, and, depending on how you look at yeah, it. Yeah, because it's at sea well, level right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and the image has to change. Um, and, and, and not lost on me was the reference to several Delta Sigma Theta uh, ladies uh, <laughs> taking charge and making an impact. Now, I'm just curious now, the ladies of Delta Sigma Theta and looking at a lady of Alpha Kappa Alpha, who is now the vice president, and in her own right, was a stellar um, attorney general out in California. Absolutely. Your thoughts, your thoughts on, on her role, and, and this is a tremendous milestone. We cannot take away from what is about to happen on January 20. Um, she will do an awesome job, I have no doubt. But there are going to be hurdles that she'll overcome. There's going to be some glass ceilings that she'll have to break through. Um, and I, and have you? let me ask you, have you worked and interacted personally with uh, Kamala Harris? 
I have, I have. And I will tell you that um, there was a lot of love across the fraternities and sororities, but especially the sororities. Um, mm -hmm. During the course of um, the campaign, we hosted a debate, we hosted a debate watch party. We actually supported the mm -hmm. AKAs in their hosting and we co-hosted the Deltas did. Um, and so to see someone that you've watched, you know, I was aware of, of um, Vice President-elect Harris when she was the prosecutor in LA and I mean in, um, in San Francisco and then became the um, California Attorney General. And so I've watched her career. I know how sharp she is. I had an opportunity to interact with her when she came to Indianapolis and then when she uh, came to the NLC conference in DC. And, um, you know, one thing that you've seen during the course of her tenure on the Judiciary Committee as a member of the Senate is that she can hold her own. You saw that on the debate stage. Uh, you saw that in the Judiciary Committee. And I think you will also see that um, as in, in her role as vice president. You've already seen her um, open the door to people who have not historically been able to serve on staff with vice presidents before. And so I just can't wait to uh, look at her tenure. And, and certainly I'm looking forward to uh, President Biden, but um, you know, I'm looking more for it. I'll admit it to a Vice President Harris. We have a few minutes left, and as always, time flies when you're when you have engaging conversations. What have we not touched upon that you would want our listeners uh, to learn more about? Well, you know, um, so we all have children, and I am uh, very blessed to have a blended family of four children, but our youngest daughter has um, a civic engagement app that I would just uh, invite you guys to take a look at. It's called Politicking. And it's not just an app, uh, very much like you all do. She does, um, it's a platform to really encourage millennials to be civic and civically engaged. It's nonpartisan. And um, she's done, you know, interviews with Democrats and Republicans alike. And last Monday, she um, interviewed Lamon Rucker, which was just a highlight for me as, as a parent. Because at the end of the day, while I've been extremely fortunate professionally, uh, I think my greatest accomplishment is as a mom. You know, just as a point of clarification, uh, Clarence has children. You and I have grown folks. <laughs> uh, and and I will make sure that my children listen to this uh, broadcast to be inspired by someone who we've always held up as an exemplar. And um, I always want, when I talk about your achievements in the city of Gary, I do so with pride. I'm going to tell you. Well, thank and you so much. You um, you were presented with some opportunities and challenges, and you met them. Um, you did not cower, and you made such an impact. And, um, and in your current role, I know you'll make uh, even a greater impact uh, in a lot of different ways, reaching out to different segments and communities. Um, after 
at the end of the day, as you, you're doing your checkoff list because you've been a judge, you've been uh, Indiana's uh, attorney general, you've been all these different roles. What is it that you want to go on and do a little bit later on? So I'll put this in, in the universe uh, because we were talking earlier about uh, serving in administration. I would love to be the drug czar for a President Harris. So that's a little down the road, we know. Okay. But uh, I'm going to put it in the universe because if you don't say it, uh, you know, hey, closed mouths don't get fed. That's right. And you heard <laughs> it first here on Bring It On. Um, I think with that, we're, we're right at the end of, of our conversation. And all I'm going to say is we'd love to have you back because as things take off in 2021, we'd like to get your observations. And as your agenda yeah. for the Urban League in Chicago develops more and more, uh, we'd like to have you back to report out on it. So well, I would, I would jump at the opportunity. I enjoy you all. And thank you so much for what you both do. And on that note, we want to thank Karen Freeman Wilson, former mayor of the city of Gary, uh, which Wayman and I proudly hail from, and currently president and CEO of the Chicago Urban League, for joining us to discuss a variety of issues related to her accomplished experiences in the public se sector and private sector, as well as her work with the Chicago Urban League and observations on the current political climate in our nation. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have any ideas for this program, we would like to hear what they are. Please send your emails to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. That email address once again, bringiton at wfhb.org. And along with your ideas, if you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send the info directly to the Bring It On staff. Once again, that is Bring It On at WFHB.org. Our show's executive producer is that gentleman you were just listening to, Clarence Boone, with help from WFHB News Department Director Cade Young. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea. I'm Clarence Boone. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.